This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Recently, an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association looked at some potential focus areas should there be in a replacement to the Affordable Care Act. This article focused on things that could be done while ensuring that people on the plan don't lose coverage. Dr. Kevin Volpe is uh, director of the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics here at the University of Pennsylvania, and he joins us to discuss the article. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, When you think about what we've seen with the Affordable Care Act, especially over the last few years and what it's done, what it hasn't done, how do you kind of encompass the whole I mean, put it in one nutshell. How do you how do you view it? The Affordable Care Act has had some noteworthy successes, and it leaves some areas on the table which are room for improvement. In terms of the notable successes, I think the biggest is it's successfully covered more than 20 million people. That, of course, has a lot of important implications in terms of reducing inequality, reducing the risk of bankruptcy among people in those families. It's also been widely credited with reducing the deficit based on how it was funded. Uh, And I think the other key thing is that it's made health insurance coverage more comprehensive. So there's some mandates that are part of the Affordable Care Act that, for example, remove pre-existing conditions that allow people to have their kids still part of their coverage until age 26. Yeah. In many people's minds, those are important provisions in their own right. So then for you and your cohort, Jonathan Skinner, to to look at this and look at it from the viewpoint of behavioral economics, really take us behind the, the, the thinking behind doing this in the first place. Sure. Well, I think a big part of the Affordable Care Act in terms of increasing coverage was to think about the underlying incentives in terms of why people are not buying coverage. Right. And for many people, it frankly just comes down to weighing the expected costs and the benefits in the short term and in people who weren't buying coverage, concluding that the benefits to them in the short term were less than what the coverage would have cost. The way the Affordable Care Act tried to deal with that was, in essence, by subsidizing the cost of coverage by providing people who are low income with fairly generous subsidies. That's a carrot-type incentive. In addition, they included a stick-type incentive in the form of an individual mandate whereby people were required to buy insurance, and if they didn't buy insurance, they'd have to pay a financial penalty. One thing we could critique is that this mandate probably wasn't strong enough. Sure, yeah. It started out at about $200. Eventually, it became about $700. That's much less than the cost of the cheapest plan. An individual could quite rationally conclude... I'm willing to pay a $700 penalty. I'm not willing to pay $4,000 or more for my coverage. And the other issue was that there was a time delay in terms of people paying this penalty. Yes, there was. It often would not kick in until you paid your taxes roughly a year and a half later. That obviously isn't so desirable from a behavioral standpoint because people very much focus on immediate consequences of their actions. Well, the, the mandate is obviously an interesting uh, topic, and it's obviously one that's being discussed quite a bit right now if we see uh, the AHCA move forward and whether or not you know a mandate would actually be part of that. Uh, but when you think about it from the financial perspective, as you said, for people to say, hey, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take the fine or you know I'll pay the penalty you know up to seven hundred dollars that that's that's not a you know a a a cost 
prohibitive uh, piece to it. But that being said, when you have the government now potentially saying, well, if you don't take your plan, you're going to get a 4,000 cost, a lot of people will get mad and react negatively towards the government basically saying, we are stepping in and making sure that you pay this, that you have this coverage. Yeah, it's an interesting issue from a philosophical standpoint. The individual mandate wasn't originally an idea hatched by Republican think tanks. And I think it really appealed to a lot of people from the sense of there's a personal responsibility here that could apply to each citizen, whereby if we're going to have an individual insurance market function, we have to have everybody in the pool. The underlying challenge is what economists call an adverse selection problem, whereby individuals, of course, know more about their health than the insurer does, and people who are above average risk will be more likely to buy coverage for a given price than people who are below average risk. Over time, that, of course, leads to premiums climbing faster and faster because the lower-risk people differentially decide not to buy coverage. And that's, in essence, what we've been seeing as is the Achilles heel of the health insurance exchanges under the Affordable Care Act, that over time in certain markets, lower-risk people are choosing not to buy insurance at higher and higher rates, which drives up the average premium uh, more than might be seen as sustainable. So how do you think that that problem needs to be approached so that you can have more of the healthy people involved in the plans without basically saying, hey, look, if you don't have this, it's going to be a $4,000 fine? Yeah. I think there are a number of ways this could be approached. If I were starting from scratch, I would consider having a stronger individual mandate and make that similar in price to the lowest price plan, because that way, in essence, everybody would have to do it. The issue there, of course, becomes one of affordability and whether the carrot-type incentive is a subsidy or it's a tax credit, whatever we might label it, those would have to be large enough so that lower-income families could actually afford the plan. Yeah, I think there are other ways we could try to approach this that would increase the likelihood that people who have coverage will continue coverage even if the individual mandate goes away. One of the principles we talk about in, in the article I wrote with Jonathan Skinner is the behavioral economic principle around inertia. Mm -hmm. And this underlies a lot of the power of defaults. But in in essence, there's a status quo bias that a lot of people experience. When they have something, it's much harder to give it up uh, than it is to acquire something afresh. So if you have people opt out of something, typically Mm -hmm. enrollment rates are in the 90% range. If people have to opt into something, enrollment rates are often in the 10% range. Mm And the way you might think about this in this context is we could have a form of automatic re-enrollment in a plan where you could peg the plan to the price of the lowest subsidy or tax credit that's being offered. You could basically say, here, you automatically have this plan. It's free. And if you want to, you can opt out of that, but then you're going to lose your coverage and the subsidy. And I think very few people thinking rationally would do that. Mm -hmm. Why would you turn down a free health insurance plan? On the other hand, if you think about this in an opt-in framework, which is the way it it has been structured up till now, this information is all out there, but you have to find it. You have to make the effort to go sign up. 
you have to go through that process, you have to sift through all the information, and you can see why that naturally would lead to a lower enrollment rate. Yeah, and one of the things, as you said, that has been a concern of a lot of people is just the process of going through and getting the insurance and, and everything that is involved. And, and I think it's a pretty safe assumption that most Americans that have to go get their health insurance want it to be as simplified a process as possible. They don't want to have to spend several days working through a website to be able to try and find the right health coverage for them. They they would like it to be able to, as best you can say, put it on a silver platter for them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And one of the problems which the Affordable Care Act has not solved uh, and which you know, a lot of people would love to see solved is the complexity of the health insurance system, the yeah. complexity of the health system itself. It's tremendously challenging for people to navigate. Many people don't really understand their health insurance benefits very well. They get a guide to benefits that might be 70 pages long, has a lot of detail. Yeah. And that's something which I think should be an important priority going forward. We've done some work with Humana on trying to think through that. We actually designed a new health plan with them that's called Humana Simplicity. Mm -hmm. And it's simple in a couple of important ways. One is that people don't understand coinsurance, deductibles, maximum yeah. out-of-pocket limits very well. They have very, a lot of difficulty calculating the expected cost of their care. Uh, what we did is we designed a plan that's copayments only, and it also only has six categories of copayments. So everything is distilled down to those categories. So instead of having the 70-page guide to benefits, everything fits on a page and a half. <laughs> which is which is fantastic because that's, uh, unfortunately, that's more the exception rather than the rule right now. That's true. Unfortunately, that is yeah. true. Uh, can we ever get to a, a, a system like that, do you think, across the entire body uh, of healthcare, you know, to be able to simplify it to a point where you take out a lot of the issues? It's a really good question, and, and it's one which... Obviously, a lot of people are struggling with, and, and I use the word struggling deliberately because yeah. if it were easy, then obviously this would have happened by now. I'm seeing more and more efforts to use design-type thinking and really moving towards thinking about how do we put the patient at the center of things. For example, there's uh, an interesting initiative in some places that are being built as new facilities to eliminate waiting rooms. Uh -huh. And the idea behind that, obviously, if you're a patient, you would love to not have a wait. But in most facilities, a lot of the space that's being built is waiting rooms. And of course, that's because there's a lot of time waiting. So if you can eliminate those waits, that's much better for the patient. Sure. It requires a whole different model in terms of flow to accommodate that. One of the things you bring up in the, in the paper, and I, you've I think talked a little bit about it to a degree is one of the behavioral economic principles that you talk about in the article is instant gratification, which, you know, people want to have that, that immediate feel of having something fantastic right at their fingertips. Right. Instant gratification is really one of the deepest human tendencies and, you know, probably states from evolutionary days where people were running away from saber toothed tigers. Yeah. But it, it's, it is important as you think about designing these programs to think about how people's desire for immediate gratification influences their choices. And I think in the context of the Affordable Care Act, this has two important implications. One is that while from an economic standpoint, it makes sense for people to just have coverage for catastrophic events, 
That's the lowest price yeah. coverage. It protects you against financial disasters. That doesn't do so well in terms of immediate gratification because people see themselves paying these premiums and feeling like they're not getting anything for it. So that's something which, where I think if you were an economist designing a plan, you'd say, let's put everyone in a low-cost, catastrophic-only coverage plan. Mm -hmm. That's the most affordable way to do this. And I think that makes sense from the standpoint of ensuring the population against catastrophic risk. But at the same time, we have to recognize that for a lot of people, that won't quite satisfy them because even though they're getting a lot in terms of financial security, mm -hmm. to them that's not going to be tangible. I think the other issue that's relevant in terms of thinking about the new proposals that are being deliberated now is the idea of having a continuous coverage requirement in lieu of the mandate. And the idea that's being discussed is, in essence, if people don't maintain co continuous coverage, they're told that when they do sign up for coverage later, they would face a financial penalty of 30% of the premium. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with that, again, is it fails the immediate gratification test. If we're having trouble getting young, healthy people to sign up now because of the penalty that exists, a penalty that would kick in at some future point if you bought coverage in the future is very unlikely to work because that's not going to be salient to people today. How how do we get past the – I mean, the subsidies obviously are, are in many cases very important to be able to have this type of, of program going forward. But a lot of people will say, look, this is an unbelievable cost that – in the end, the American public is having to having to pay for. I mean, they're, you know, we're paying all as a country for the the potential health care of twenty million people. How do we get past that issue? Yeah, that that's a very deep question. In that it, it relates a lot to you know, what kind of country do we want to be sure, in terms yeah. of how we care for those who are less able to care for themselves when we compare ourselves with various Western European countries, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, they've all figured out how to do this. Right. And, and in some sense, the only way to do it in terms of lower income people is to have cross-subsidization from higher income people that can support that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really quite striking that before the Affordable Care Act came into play, we had about 45 million people in the U.S. who didn't have coverage we still have 20 to 25 million, so it's still a lot of people. I think it does take its toll in various ways to have a lot of uninsured people in the U.S., uh, but there's no questioning that if we are going to provide coverage to more people who can't afford it on it on their own, it will cost money. So you talk about the fact that other countries have kind of figured this out to be able to, to manage this to a degree. Is it just the system that we have right now and the fact that it's so expansive and, and there are so many tentacles to it right now that that's one of the main reasons why we're not able to be able to implement something like you may see that works in another country? I think the, the single biggest reason is that healthcare in the U.S. is significantly more expensive than anywhere else. You know, it's, it's really quite striking. If you look at a graph of how spending in the U.S. has changed relative yeah. to life expectancy and you compare us with the 26 OECD countries we're commonly compared with, yeah. in the 70s, we all started at the same place. 
And on this graph, let's imagine you have life expectancy on the x-axis, uh, sorry, life expectancy on the y-axis, spending on the x-axis. The U.S. basically goes up and then curves over to the right, and we sort of stand by ourselves in terms of how much we spend. Yeah. But life expectancy has actually improved a lot more in the other countries. Sure, yeah. So we're in this strange situation where we rank first in spending by a wide margin, and we rank 26th in life expectancy. So that's not, you know, you don't need to be a, a business strategist to conclude that that's not a very good return on investment in terms of the money we spend on health services. And I think if we did spend 30% less per capita, then it would be much easier to provide coverage to everybody. We're talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Volp, who is the uh, director of the Center for Health Incentives and, Be at, uh, and Behavioral Economics here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're talking about the article that he and Jonathan Skinner uh, recently published uh, about uh, replacing the Affordable Care Act lessons from behavioral economics, 844-942-7866. I guess uh, to a degree, and with so much of this in flux right now, uh, this to a degree becomes a little bit of of a watch and wait. I would think for yourself and for a lot of other people that are that are kind of in this realm to see how this play out plays out, so we can understand what the next five to ten steps are in the process. Correct? Yeah, I think there's a lot of concerns that the proverbial baby will be thrown out with the bathwater. Yeah. There's a lot of good things the Affordable Care Act did. I think the biggest remaining challenge is this issue of higher risk people uh, buying insurance at higher rates, lower risk people not buying insurance, yeah. and that leading to premiums increasing in more in some markets than is sustainable. So you know that is a problem that could be solved in isolation, but unraveling the whole system creates a lot of uncertainty for all the insurers. And that in itself becomes a problem because a lot of them may then pull out of these markets yeah. and then we don't have a market. But as you said before, uh, having an insurance plan of some kind and to benefit as many people as it has, that's at least a first step in the process. Uh, I mean, and you, you hear the rhetoric back and forth on Capitol Hill from both sides. Obviously, from the Republican side, it's a little bit more fervent than it is from the Democratic side. But even on the Democratic side, they say, look, we understand that there are some things that need to be worked on with, with this plan. Uh, we just need to kind of dig in and, and get to it at this point. Yeah, ideally, there, there would be a bipartisan effort that would say, let's build on what's been done the Affordable Care Act is actually a market-based solution. It's very far away from what Democrats had proposed in the past. You know, it's, it's not at all like a single-payer kind of system. It's saying, let's create these marketplaces, the individual insurance market. Let's try to figure out how to make that work better. Mm -hmm. We have to provide subsidies to people to make the insurance coverage affordable. I think that's common to how people across the political aisle would think about this. Where there's differences now are in things like how big are these subsidies or tax credits? Yeah. That's obviously a key question. And how strongly do we feel we can compel people to participate? Is there an individual mandate? Is there not an individual mandate? If we don't have the individual mandate, what are the alternatives? As I mentioned, I don't think this continuous coverage requirement is going to work. I think it fails the behavioral test in terms of 
people making decisions based on immediate costs and benefits as opposed to those they would only face at some point down the road. G- going back to the inertia principle that, that you talked about before, uh, I guess then because of the fact that we have so many people and, and the baby boomer generation getting older and we're going to have more people that are in that retirement age needing that advanced health care or needing uh, care in a hospice or, or a, some sort of facility, uh, that it becomes even more important to be able to have the younger age component as well to, to level to level off the field to a degree. Yeah, I think that's fair. Healthcare has always been uh, an 80-20 proposition. So 20% of people end up being responsible for probably about 80% of the costs. Yeah. And that is one of the underlying challenges here, particularly as you think about trying to make these individual marketplaces work, if you have a few very high cost people, that obviously raises the average cost for everybody. One approach that Jonathan Skinner and I suggest in the article is really thinking a bit differently about the high risk pools. So there's various groups have talked about the idea of pulling out the higher risk people. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you pull out the higher risk people, then this problem of the markets unraveling and becoming the premiums progressively going up becomes much less of an issue because the higher risk people are then no longer part of that average cost. Right. If we pull out the higher risk people, uh, you might actually see premiums go down for lower risk people. If we then think, okay, well, where do we put the higher risk pro- people? One challenge is creating a separate pool for them. There's a long history of those kind of pools not working very well. They right. tend to be underfunded. Uh, there's not generally enough political will to support them. And I think a good example of how we've done this well is what's happened with people who are on end-stage renal dialysis who basically just got folded into the Medicare program many decades ago. And it relates to the issue of salience of taxation. It's very hard to raise money separately for any kind of new significant programmatic initiative. Mm -hmm. But if we just folded those high-risk people into Medicare, they'd be absorbed, they'd be a small portion of the Medicare population, and their average cost would be much lower. And, and, and to a degree, wouldn't the lower-risk people, if you're, if you're grouping them off into a separate group, to a degree, if you have enough of them, don't they almost pay for themselves, correct? Not, not sure I followed your well, question exactly. Well, I mean, if you're taking the, the, the high-risk people out to a degree, mm-hmm. and obviously that's a, a big economic kind of uh, hurdle that you have to clear— you're basically having a second group with the lower with the lower risk people. If you have enough of those people in that group, mm-hmm. there isn't as much of the economic burden on that group compared to when you have the high risk people in there. Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think if we pulled out the twenty percent highest risk people from the health insurance exchanges, we put them in Medicare, the average cost for the people, the eighty percent of people who remained would be much lower than it is now. That makes insurance much more affordable. It makes it much more likely that more lower-risk people would choose to buy insurance, and then you'd have a much better functioning market. We're talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Bolp of the uh, University of Pennsylvania. He is a director of the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. I I guess to a degree, thinking about it through some of the lenses that you have obviously brought forth, how... How normal of a process is that in terms of the overall spectrum of looking at healthcare right now? I mean, is this something that's a that's a common kind of thought process by yourself and and Jonathan Skinner and, and other people that are looking at this, or are are we really starting to kind of tip onto kind of new ground at this point? 
I think a, a lot of the challenges are well known. The way different groups are trying to solve those challenges differ based on their beliefs, based on their political philosophy, and that's where I think the mandate tends to get tripped up. You know, there's generally an acknowledgement that subsidies alone may not be enough to get people to sign up. There's a well-documented literature in behavioral economics that carrots are weaker than sticks. Right. People tend to be very loss-averse. The disutility of a penalty is probably two to one for an equivalent dollar gain. And so subsidies alone probably will not work in terms of getting sufficient people to enroll in these marketplaces. It's possible that some combination of these approaches, if you could pull the high-risk people out of the individual insurance market, that lowered individual premiums, uh, that would help. But I think you still have this fundamental problem that in the current setting, you have people having to opt in, right. you have subsidies only, you have a delayed penalty in terms of the con continuous coverage requirement, and it just may not be salient enough for that young, healthy person who's thinking, I don't want to pay this premium now for something that might or might not help me down the road. Kevin, great to see you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kevin Volpe from the University of Pennsylvania, as we mentioned, director of the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.